Well, as I said, our text this evening is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You can already turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we'll be looking specifically at verses 18 to 31. And as you turn there, I want to set up our, our study for this evening by looking at the, the problem of, of accommodation. The problem of accommodation. We desperately want the world to accept us. That is a common temptation that we feel. Francis Schaeffer, a number of years ago, described the problem this way in a book called The Great Evangelical Disaster. He wrote this, quote, Here is the great evangelical disaster. The failure of the evangelical world to stand for truth as truth. There is only one word for this, namely, accommodation. The evangelical church has accommodated to the spirit of the age. First, there has been accommodation on Scripture so that many who call themselves evangelicals hold a weakened view of the Bible and no longer affirm the truth of all that the Bible teaches. Truth, not only in religious matters, but in the areas of science and history and morality. This accommodation has been costly. First, in destroying the power of the Scriptures to confront the spirit of our age. Second, in allowing the further slide of our culture. Thus, we must say with tears that it is the evangelical accommodation to the world's spirit around us, to the wisdom of this age, which removes the evangelical church from standing against the breakdown of our culture. End quote. What he is describing here on a On a broad scale, uh, speaking of the church as a whole is certainly also true of individuals. We, We too experience this as we see the accommodation of men that we know to the spirit of the age. Men who slowly over time or in some cases more rapidly begin to think as the world thinks. They may have started off well. They may have confessed truths very passionately, but over time, they they accommodate. They go back to the world and they begin to think and talk like the world once again. Well, what is this? What is driving this? And we could even recognize this in our own flesh. It is the, the constant battle with the flesh over something that we can call the desire for validation. The desire for validation. This desire for affirmation, this desire for approval, is one of the strongest motivating forces known to man. Of course, Christians are not immune to this. On the one hand, it is even a good thing. There are Numerous texts, such as 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, that speak of the fact that it, it must be our desire to please God, to live for His validation in our lives as His children. That is a good thing. But validation from the culture, validation from the world, is something also that knocks on the door constantly. Christians are not immune to that, and many times capitulate to this desire for validation 
through what we can call intellectual accommodation. The tendency is to submit a Christian way of thinking, the Christian way of thinking, to submit a biblical worldview to the demands of the unbeliever or to the demands of of the culture at large. And that is often driven by this fear to be labeled with some kind of pejorative term, such as being called a, a fundamentalist, a fanatic. We are taught that those are bad terms, and so we shrink back whenever someone begins to to talk that way about us. We instead want their approval. We want them to affirm us, to speak well of us. For many Christians today, there is this unwritten commandment, perhaps we can call it the 11th commandment, that you shall not offend. In other words, you shall not offend society. You shall not offend your neighbor. That is somewhat of an unspoken rule among many Christians. They, they're fearful about being offensive. Fearful uh, uh, about getting in the, the way of, of the culture. Instead, they, they want the validation. There's much talk today about having a public witness that is that is not embarrassing, a public witness that, that does not offend. In fact, we just need to look over the last two years to see how this has played out in the church. How so many within the church bought into the world's definition of love thy neighbor and then began to criticize and to ridicule along with the world anyone who for conscience's sake, for the sake of Scripture, wanted to continue to meet together for the worship of Christ, all of a sudden you had many Christians taking the, all the different venues of, of social media to ridicule other Christians, and you had this phrase, love thy neighbor, thrown out left and right, wrested out of the, the actual original context of Scripture and made to communicate something much different. This is intellectual accommodation. And and men, we are going to to see this play out in a massive scale in the years to come. We know that the culture which has tolerated Christians over the last number of generations is no longer going to be so nice. The pressure will be on. The pejorative terms are only going to to become more frequent. And the cost of standing firm for the faith is going to become significant. And in that context, under that pressure, we are going to see much intellectual accommodation. Much accommodation of Christians and their worldview to the, to the, to the worldview present in the culture. So how do we resist this? How do we strengthen ourselves? How do we understand this this distinction that is to take place between how we look at the world, how we understand reality, how we understand ourselves and God? How are we to understand the difference between the biblical worldview and the worldviews that are out there in the world? 
Well, an important text that speaks to this is found in 1 Corinthians. You've already turned there. Let's now read it. I'll actually begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, because it sets up this section beginning in verse 18 and going to the end of verse 31. Paul says this as he writes to the Corinthian church, chapter 117, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks ask for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Well, as we look at this text this evening, we're going to to organize it around two essential truths that are important for us to grasp if we are to understand a distinction that must exist between our worldview and the worldview that is present in the world. And the first of these truths is is found in verses 18 to 25. We're going to look at that paragraph first, and we can summarize that paragraph, those verses, with a simple statement, and it's this, the bankruptcy of human opinion, the bankruptcy of human philosophy, the the bankruptcy of human power, of human wisdom, of human erudition, it's bankrupt. And Paul focuses on that in verses 18 to, to 25, and he begins with a crucial premise. Notice how he begins this section in verse 18, he says this, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now we must focus first of all on this phrase, the word of the cross. Now on the one hand, that phrase, the word of the cross, is is a term that relates to a broad body of information. It relates to all of the apostolic teaching. You could call it the, the whole counsel of God falls under this umbrella term, this umbrella phrase of the word of the cross. And yet, the way it's articulated here is is that it is called the word of the cross. This body of teaching is called the word of the cross because it emphasizes the centrality of the death of Jesus Christ. That's central to this body of knowledge, central to this teaching, is the atonement of Jesus Christ. It is the the centerpiece, the hub. And if you take this part away, it all falls apart. It is that which unified this body of instruction. And this word of the cross, this teaching about the death of Jesus Christ, is so important, so vital, and so discriminating that Paul is able here to categorize all men based on their response to that teaching about the death of Christ. He categorizes all humanity into two groups. Notice how he describes these groups here in verse 18. This word of the cross to one category, one of the two categories of mankind, is called, or the, the response is, 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 is to call it foolishness. It's the Greek term moria, which means, or which, from which we derive our English term moron. That there are some who look on the body of apostolic teaching, which is captured for us in the New Testament. That there are some who look on that teaching with the death of Jesus Christ, his vicarious atonement, as center. They look upon that and they call it moronic. They call it moronic. Paul describes them as those who are perishing. Those who are perishing. Those who are on the the path to destruction. And they are those who look at the death of Christ, the cross of Christ, with derision. They look on it as a scandal. They look on it as offensive. For them, the crucifixion was man's means to ridicule and exterminate criminals. That's the crucifixion. And so if you have a a man who dies on a cross from crucifixion, he's a man who's ridiculed, scorned, rejected, and exterminated as a criminal. And how can that be the centerpiece of your whole worldview? Well, to those who are perishing, this is moronic. That you would claim that the death of Christ is the centerpiece of your understanding. That it determines everything else with how you view life, how you view yourself, how you view God, how you view this world, how you view others. They say you're ridiculous. On the other hand, Paul says, you have a second category 
And the second category is marked by a different response to this word of the cross. And this response is to acknowledge it as the power of God. The power of God. And those who recognize it as the power of God are those who are described as being saved. It doesn't mean that their eternal destiny is unsure. It it simply means that they're already on the, the path to the celestial city. They still are here in this life. They still are struggling with the flesh, but their, their future is secure. They're not there yet, but they are on their way. They are those who are being saved. Now, how do those who are being saved look upon the cross of Christ? Well, Paul says it this, this way. They look upon it as the power of God, which means they look upon this, this scandalous act as God's Blessed means for bringing forgiveness to sinners. Now, for those of us who are being saved, the cross is indeed a precious thing. But let's step back for just a moment to see how scandalous the cross was in that time when Paul writes to the Corinthians. One writer describes crucifixion this way, and it helps us understand just just how bizarre the teaching of a Savior who dies on a cross would have been to pagan listeners and to Jewish listeners as well. Greg Gilbert writes this, quote, Crucifixion was never a private event. It was always raw and searingly public because its purpose was to terrify the masses into submission to the authorities. Crosses often lined the main roads into cities, holding the broken, writhing bodies of the condemned, or displaying the rotting corpses of the dead. The Romans even scheduled public crucifixions to coincide with religious festivals, ensuring the maximum number of people present to witness the horror. Murderers, Robbers, traitors, and slaves were crucified brutally by the thousands all over the empire and always deliberately. Shredded flesh against unforgiving wood, iron stakes pounded through bone and racked nerves, joints wrenched out of socket by the sheer dead weight of the body, public humiliation before the eyes of family, friends, and the world, that was the death on the cross. The infamous stake, as the Romans called it. The barren wood, the maxima mala crux. Or as the Greeks spat it out, the stauros. No, run, no wonder no one talked about it. No wonder parents hid their children's eyes from it. The stauros was a loathsome thing. And the one who died on it, was loathsome too, a vile criminal whose only use was to hang there as a putrid, decaying warning to anyone else who might follow his example. That is how Jesus died. Cicero, who was a Roman statesman who lived before the time of Christ, but a century before, also describes crucifixion in these words he says this 
Wretched is the loss of one's good name in the public courts. Wretched too, a monetary fine exacted from one's property. And wretched is exile. But still, in each calamity there is retained some trace of liberty. Even if death is set before us, we may die in freedom. But the executioner, the veiling of heads... And the very word cross. Let them all be far removed from not only the bodies of Roman citizens. But even from their thoughts. Their eyes. And their ears. The results and the suffering from these doings. As well as the situation. Even anticipation of their enablement. And in the end. The mere mention of them. Are unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. End quote. That is how the Romans, the Greeks, and even the Jews looked upon the stauros, the cross, that stake, that barren stake. That's how they looked upon it. And you can imagine how the first Mention of that from the lips of the Apostle Paul there in Corinth would have brought shock. Paul comes into the city. He comes into the, both the synagogue and into the city square. And he begins to talk about an innocent man who died on a cross bearing the sins of guilty men. And that through that death, that ugly, horrific, atrocious death brings forgiveness and life to all who embrace it. You can understand how the, the Greeks and the Jews would have reacted to that idea. And yet, as the Apostle Paul says, this is what distinguishes men. This is what distinguishes men into two categories. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. It all comes down to this fundamental issue in life. How do you look at this cross? Even today, the cross is, is derided and scorned. One British philosopher by the name of A.J. Iyer said this a number of, of years ago, and it communicates the, 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 the wisdom of this world. It communicates the, the wisdom that is still so very prevalent, even in our own culture, that is a so-called Christian culture. A.J. Iyer, the philosopher, said this, Of all religions, a strong case can be made against Christianity as the worst. Because it rests on the allied doctrines of original sin and vicarious atonement. Which are intellectually contemptible and morally outrageous. Those words come from the mouth of one who perished. Paul goes on and as he continues to make this assertion. He goes on then in in verse 19 to give God's verdict to those 
who speak like A.J. Iyer. He says in verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Paul here is quoting from Isaiah chapter 29, 14. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Now notice verse 20. Paul then begins by listing a series of rhetorical questions. And he first begins with three very parallel, very similar rhetorical questions. And all of these rhetorical questions assume the answer, nowhere. Paul asks this, he says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? All those titles represented the intelligentsia of the era. The the wise man, the scribe, the debater of the age. The the word wise man there is, is is a reference to one who would have intelligence and education above average. That's the wise man. He's the educated one. The, the term the scribe, grammatus, is the term that was used to refer to specialists in the law of Moses. There you have a reference to the Jewish elite, the specialists in the law of Moses. And then he adds another term here, a very unusual one. He says, and where is the debater of this age? Probably a reference to Greek philosophers. So he begins by referring to all learned men to begin with, and then to the Jewish learned man, and then to the Greek learned man, and he asks these questions, these rhetorical questions. Where are they? Where are they? Where are they? Paul is essentially saying, I can't hear you. I cannot hear the scribe. I cannot hear the wise man. I cannot hear the debater of the age. They're not here. And then he makes another, he states another rhetorical question, and again, it, it's assuming a particular answer. He asked this fourth rhetorical question in the end of verse 20. He says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And the answer that is assumed here from Paul is indeed he has. Absolutely he has. God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. Now what's interesting to note here, it's, it's, it's a reflection of what he's just said uh, back in verse 19 of this, this statement from Scripture where he quotes Isaiah chapter 29. What's important to note here is that Paul silences human wisdom And he does so not because he enters into some kind of intellectual competition, bantering back and forth to see who will win the argument. He simply makes the statement as a declaration from God. And that declaration from God is is evidenced in that bloody cross of Jesus Christ. The scandalous death of Christ... So proves efficacious, not only for salvation. You go back to verse 18. Paul says, for those who who embrace the cross as the power of God, they are the ones being saved. That cross is efficacious to save those who believe in it. 
But the cross of Christ is also efficacious to humiliate and to condemn the very best of the natural human intellect. God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. He has declared it to be foolish on the basis of the cross. He's used it to crush human pride. He then continues in verse 21 and he he says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And then he says this in verses 22 to 24, For indeed Jews ask for signs and, and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews And to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now we see how Paul is identifying these different kinds of worldviews, even here in verse 22. First of all, he says the Jews are the ones who ask for signs. The cross isn't enough for them. The word of the cross, the preaching of the cross is not enough. They rejected that word. They rejected that message and demanded miracles instead. They want to see the power. They they want that Paul would succumb to their own court of law and substantiate his teaching according to their expectations. So if this word of the cross is true... Then Paul, do these miracles. Paul, show this power and then maybe if you do enough, we'll consider. They are the evidentialists. Those who seek affirmation, seek substantiation and justification from how they look on the world. From their senses. But you also have another category here. The Greeks. And the Greeks are the rationalists. They're the ones who search for wisdom. Now notice for the Greeks, as the ones searching for wisdom, they believe it is within their power to identify what wisdom really is, to seek it out and to obtain it. For the Greeks, they very much loved this this wisdom, this love of, of wisdom, philosophy, And they believed they had it within themselves to understand what that philosophy is in its true form. What wisdom is in its true form. And when these Greeks heard the Apostle Paul speak of the cross, they rejected that message and instead demanded syncretism. They wanted that Paul would would subserve his teaching to the dictates of Greek philosophy, the dictates of the the culture, its reasoning. In response to those two, Paul provides a very different way of looking at knowledge, a very different way of understanding how we know what we know. And we find that in a very simple statement when he contrasts what the Greeks do and what the Jews do, and he says this, but We preach Christ crucified. We preach. Kerugma. 
the idea of heralding without apology, without excuse, without alteration, we proclaim. We see that in response to these demands by the culture to assimilate and to abide by the culture's standards of reasoning and evidence, Paul doesn't acquiesce. He's not in it for affirmation. He's not trying to gain their approval. And instead, in response to their demands, Paul says, we preach. We proclaim. We can call Paul a revelationist. He believed that the power resided in the word of God itself. There was no higher authority. There was nothing else that you could look at that would verify the word of God. It was the ultimate authority. Nothing came close. Nothing could substantiate it. It exists over all and gives light and understanding to all else. And so Paul says to the Jews who are the evidentialists and the Greeks who are the rationalists, he says, no, I'm not going to play by this game. I'm not after your affirmation. I'm not after your friendship. I'm not after your approval. I'm here to state the truth. And here it is. It's called the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul continues in verse 25 and he says this, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Here we have a verdict that explains why Paul is not going to stoop to the level of the evidentialists and the rationalists. He's not going to stoop there. Why? Because even in their best expressions, they come nowhere close to even the weakest The weakest word of God, even though no word of God is weak. The natural intellect and its demands are bankrupt, Paul says. What man judges as foolishness and weakness, namely the cross, turns out to be the wisest and the strongest. And what is most offensive turns out to be truest. That's the reality of the message of the gospel. And we must understand that, men, because again, this drive to be affirmed by the world causes many to shrink back, to seek approval, and to avoid anything that reeks of offense But in reality, that which is most offensive, Paul says, is the truest. That which the world utterly scorns is what is true. And there can be no true understanding of God. There can be no true understanding of self. There can be no true understanding of this world apart from submission to and embracing this word of God. The cross. Rationality won't get you there. Evidential proofs won't get you there. But what gets you there is faith. Trust in this word. Again, we need to to remember this because, as we've already mentioned, the the drive to be affirmed by the world is, is so strong. 
in his book, Ashamed of the Gospel, Pastor John writes this. As in the church at Corinth, many today have, quote, bowed at the shrine of academia. Attempting to assimilate secular theology, philosophy, politics, psychology, moral relativism, evolutionary theory, and every other academic fad. Finding those things incompatible with the Bible and with the simplicity of the gospel. Christians have too often been willing to twist and shape divine truth to try to make it fit. Multitudes have thus been drawn away From the singular devotion to biblical doctrine to embrace human wisdom. Saw that even just this past week. A tweet by Timothy Keller who evidences on an almost daily basis his affinity for the approval of the culture. A couple of days ago he tweeted out this. If you tell people they are wrong because the Bible says so. And they don't believe the Bible. You won't persuade them. If you tell people they are wrong based on their own premises. Because some of their beliefs contradict their others. They are likely to listen to you more. End quote. In other words. If they're not going to believe the Bible. They don't already believe it. You know what? Maybe it's better just to argue and discuss what they do believe. And see where you can get it from there. Ashamed of the truth. But again, think of Paul coming into Corinth. Or Athens for that matter. Standing before some of the wisest men of of the age. And then preaching about a man named Jesus. Who was sinless. And yet was tortured, nailed to a cross. And he did that willingly so that he would bear the sins of everyone who would believe in him. And that through that bloody death, he would be able to bring forgiveness of sins to those who believe. Well, there's a second emphasis in this text as well. Found in verses 26 to 31. And we'll make just a few comments here as it, as it now shifts focus from the bankruptcy of the worldview that we see in the world. The bankruptcy of human opinion, philosophy, erudition, scholarship, the academy and so on. And now Paul transitions to the triumph of divine wisdom. He begins in verse 26 and he says this, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. This transition is important because it's based on a reality that that since the cross is so scandalous, it begs the question, who would ever believe in it? Who would ever believe in that cross? Who would ever believe in that kind of salvation purchased in that manner? Who would ever believe that? If the wisest of the wise, 
The most religious of the religious would would reject this and scorn it and ridicule it. How in the world would anyone ever believe this? Well, Paul explains it here in verse 26, and he uses this word, calling. Remember your calling. He's addressing the brethren. He's not now addressing the world. He's not addressing the debater. He's not addressing the scribe. He's not addressing the wise men. He's addressing the brothers here in Corinth. And he says, consider, look upon your calling. And that word calling is a very special term that emphasizes selection. Selection by God. It's, it's used, in fact, just back in chapter 1, verse 2, as Paul opens the letter, he says this, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Saints by calling. He also used this term back in verse 24, when he says this, of chapter 1, 124, but to those who are the called. The selected ones, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power and the wisdom of God. This little term emphasizes the fact that apart from this sovereign activity of God, this effectual calling, no one would believe in this scandalous message. And this selection, Paul says, has been has taken place in, a, in the pool of the most unexpected character. He says it's happened mainly among the foolish, mainly among the powerless, mainly among the insignificant. That where God wants to put his wisdom on display and, and show his triumph over the pride of man, he goes to the lowest He goes to the low classes. He goes to the dredges. He goes to the losers and he saves them. He selects them. And in Christ he makes them wise and powerful. He continues and says this in verses 27 to 28. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not. Three times he again uses another verb that emphasizes God's free and sovereign choice. It's the verb that means to pick out for oneself. To choose for oneself. And again it emphasizes the fact that no one would ever believe this message. No one would ever believe the the, the message of the cross. Apart from this choice. And that leads us to an important conclusion. That for those of us who are being saved. for, For those of us who do see that the power and wisdom of God is manifest in the cross. That belief That faith can never be attributed to our own intelligence, to our own reasoning. This is a a work of God. He's going to mention this in verse 30 when he'll say this, but by his own doing, by God's own doing, you are in Christ Jesus. 
God's approach is to choose in such a way so that belief can never be credited or attributed to to education, to authority, to, to status, to privilege. This is God's way of saving people. And he does this, we see in verses 28 to 29, with a purpose in mind. He has two purpose clauses here, the so that clauses. And, and, and these explain why God works this way. So that he may nullify the things that are. And so that no man may boast before God. This is all God's strategy in the cross. This is what he was Setting out to accomplish. Number one, to nullify, to invalidate the things that are. What are the things? What what things are? Well, look around you in the culture. The things that are refer to the pride of man. Man's wisdom. Man's achievements. Man's edifices and towers. Man's strength and power. God has planned the message of the cross this way to nullify those things. And then, growing out of that, to remove any potential for taking pride in the self. As he closes this section, he ends with these words. And the final words again, another quotation from the Old Testament from Jeremiah 9.23. He says this, but by his doing, by God's doing... You are in Christ Jesus, who has become to us wisdom. The wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now how do we pull this all together and integrate this with our thinking as we talk about the Christian mind Let me give you a few final exhortations here. I'll go through these rather quick and leave it for you to think deeply about how to take this further. But the first of these is this. As you you reflect upon the teaching here on the word of the cross, number one, marvel at the grace of God manifest in your salvation. That's where we go immediately. Marvel at the grace of God manifest in your salvation. Paul even says that in verse 26. He says, consider, look upon your calling. Look upon your election. Your selection to this. And and remember, men, that you would not have believed this message if it was left up to you. You would not be here tonight if it was left up to you. You would not be a part of this church if it was left up to you. You would not have embraced the word of the cross, but you did. Because God chose to manifest his grace in your unworthiness. And as you dwell upon this, this is what leads to true humility. Some will often say that the doctrine of election is such a proud doctrine And they've got it absolutely wrong. When the doctrine of election is understood, it makes men humble. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. I know nothing, nothing again, that is more humbling for us than this doctrine of election. 
I have sometimes fallen prostrate before it when endeavoring to understand it. I have stretched out my wings and like an eagle I have soared towards the sun. Steady has been my eye and true my wing for a time. But when I came near it and the one thought possessed me. That God hath from the beginning chosen you into salvation. I was lost in its luster. I was staggered with the mighty thought. And from the dizzy elevation down came my soul prostrate and, and, and broken saying, Lord, I am nothing. I am less than nothing. Why me? Why me? We even sang about it in that song. How sweet and awful is the place song by Isaac Watts, he says in stanza three, Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Marvel that you look upon the cross And you see it as the emblem of God's power and wisdom. Number two, reclaim the cross as the center of your worldview. Reclaim the cross of Christ as the center of your worldview. We see this in Paul. Paul, as he summarized his entire life, he describes it with these words. He says in verses 23 to 24, we preach Christ crucified. The power and the wisdom of God. And a little bit later on in chapter 2 verse 2. He'll he'll say this. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now is Paul there saying that he he has renounced all mathematics. And and all his his knowledge of all other things outside of, of, of the gospel message. Strictly speaking. No. What he's saying when he says I determined to know nothing else except Jesus Christ, is that everything in his thinking now flowed through Jesus Christ and his atonement. This world and our own lives will only make sense when when Jesus Christ is indeed the center of our worldview. When we we understand the cross and we we appreciate and value its, its message and cling to that cross... And, and we think long and deep and, 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 and we, we bend it into our, our thinking, our thought processes so that it's, it's the centerpiece. It's then that we'll understand what is happening in the world around us. It's then that we'll understand what is happening in us. It's, it's then that we'll have the perspective we need for looking on life and death. And when we don't, When we don't have the cross as the centerpiece, it's exactly there at that moment that we'll begin to seek the affirmation of the world. D.A. Carson gave this warning. He said this, I fear that the cross, without ever being disowned, is constantly in danger of being dismissed from the central place it must enjoy. It's, It's in constant danger. 
And whenever it's been placed on the periphery, he goes on to say, whenever the periphery is, is, is where the cross is, it's there where we will most likely be guilty of idolatry. Something else will take the center. And most likely, when the cross is pushed to the side, what takes the center will be the applause of the world. And that leads us to our third point. Stop striving for the validation of the world. Don't care about it. Really, it's, it's one of the most freeing things when you can just say, I don't care. Now, that's not to say we don't love the souls. It's not to say that we don't ache for their salvation. But when it comes to their approval, when it comes to their applause, when it comes to, 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 to their uh, affirmation that, that we can think Christianly and act Christianly and worship Christianly, it's so freeing when we can say, I don't care what they think. Paul said, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Indeed, the the desire for validation is a powerful motivating force, but we must look for that validation of our beliefs and of our witness to the gospel in, in God alone. And that also means then that whatever God looks on with disdain, we cannot look on with respect. J. Gresham Machen speaks of this when he writes, There are those who are concerned with the question of their standing before men, but never with with the question of their standing before God. There are those who are interested in what people say, but not in the question of what God says. Such men, however, are not those who move the world. They are apt to go with the current They are apt to do as others do. They are not the heroes who change the destinies of the race. The beginning of true nobility comes when a man ceases to be interested in the judgment of men and becomes interested in the judgment of God. It's those kinds of men that we need today. It's that kind of man that was... Represented in the likes of David Brainerd, one of the first missionaries to Native Americans in the late 1700s. He died by the time he was 29, exhausted and diseased in his effort to bring the gospel to Native Americans. And he wraps up this thinking so well with this entry from his diary. He says this, God was so precious to my soul that the world with all its enjoyments appeared vile. I had no more value for the favor of men than for pebbles. Number four, don't be ashamed to associate with the church. Don't be ashamed to associate with the church. Certainly a lot of this has happened in light of the COVID era. And a lot more of this is going to happen in the years to come. As the culture moves from ambivalence toward the church. To direct visible hostility. There will come times when now at your work you will be asked. Do you attend a church that preaches against homosexuality? 
Do you subscribe to a statement of faith that does not recognize transgenderism? Do you associate with those who believe that Jesus Christ is the only way? You are going to begin to face those questions if you haven't already. And what this text teaches us, one of these applications is not to be ashamed with those in the church. Paul said, I am not ashamed of of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And, And this courage in the gospel is going to manifest itself in courage to associate with those whom the gospel saves. As weak and as unseemly as they are. John Owen, in a comment on 1 John 1 verse 3, has an interesting statement. When he says this, he says, The outward appearance and condition of the saints in those days, in John the Apostle's days, was very mean and contemptible. Their leaders being accounted as the filth of this world and as the off-scouring of all things. The inviting of others into fellowship with them and a participation of the precious things which they did enjoy seemed to be exposed to many contrary reasonings and objections. What benefit is there in communion with them? Is, Is it anything else but to the sharers in troubles, reproaches, scorns, and all manner of evils? To prevent or remove these and the like exceptions, the apostle gives them to whom he wrote to know that notwithstanding all the disadvantages their fellowship lay under, unto a carnal view, yet in truth it was and would be found to be very honorable, glorious, and desirable. For truly, says he, our fellowship It is the fellowship of the church is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray that this text would would work in us in amazing ways to develop and form a worldview that is necessary for this day. For the glory of God and for the good of His church. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in confession that so often we we have been motivated by the applause of men. In particular, the applause of those who do not love you and who scorn at the thought of Of the bloody cross. We confess that to you Lord. And we recognize that as the source. Of our weakness. Of our lack of courage. Of our silence when we should speak. And our failure to proclaim when. We must proclaim. And with this confession father we do. Pray that. You would take these words out of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Written with the, this boldness of the Apostle Paul. Controlled by your spirit. 
and fixated on the power of the cross, that you would take these words and form us into courageous men who care nothing for the applause of this world and the pleasure of unbelievers, but are sold out wholeheartedly to the power of this word. Proclaim it without compromise, without accommodation, without trying to to, to hide the offensive things, but we would proclaim it clearly. Then that you would use us like you did men like David Brainerd to bring souls into your church. To the foot of the cross and into the hands of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.